Amen. Okay, well we're going to take a moment to uh, look at the Bible now. So if you don't have a Bible, uh, why not go and grab one? Uh, I'm just going to grab a glass of water. If you're a guest with us or you've been coming along for a couple of weeks over Christmas um, and not uh, been to one of our normal services, this is uh, something we like to do most of the time, is to uh, spend a bit of time in the morning, a significant amount of time in the morning, just uh, stopping and reading what the Bible says and praying that God would show us how it can change the way we live today. Uh, Because we believe that this is how God speaks to us. Uh, So that's what we're going to do now. We're going to uh, stop and look at a little bit of the Bible, a small chunk of the Bible, and just ponder what it is that God is teaching us through it. So it's been a sad week in my house. I I didn't even get a single R. Not a single R. It's been a sad week in my house. Thank you. Goodness me. I have four days off for Christmas, okay? Cut me some slack. It's been a sad week in our house because our Christmas tree is down and all of our decorations are away. And, uh, pipe down. Uh, I actually fought in order to keep the Christmas tree up and the decorations up in the church. And I fought on a point of principle. I am, I am uh, valiantly fighting to keep Christmas traditions alive. And Christmas decorations should be up until the 12th day of Christmas. Uh, otherwise, you can't sing the song. And the 12th day of Christmas is Epiphany. And uh, we've never, we're not a very traditional church, as you might have gathered. Um, but... Uh, I really like these festivals. I like these festivals. It gives me a link to uh, something of the past, but it also, I think, is helpful in teaching us. And I like the 12 days of Christmas because I'm still waiting for Heather to get me 12 drummers drumming. Uh, I thought about that for this morning, but it's a small stage, and I felt like that would be a little bit overwhelming. It is uh, it's a serious point, though. Right, the, the festivals that we had, so we talked a bit about Advent, we spent some time thinking in Advent about why Jesus was coming at Christmas and what we could look forward to when Jesus returned. That's what Advent's about. It's like that period of waiting and building up that then makes the celebration of Christmas worthwhile. Okay? In a sense, if you feast all the time, then you lose the impact of the, what you're doing. Whereas if you spend some time fasting before you feast, it seems much better. Uh, And it's a chance to stop and to think and to reflect and to be quiet. And actually I found that really helpful when we were doing that. And Epiphany, coming after Christmas, it actually helps us to think through what it is that Christmas should mean as we go into a new year. So one of the things I've noticed with packing the tree up and uh, with uh, going back to work and seeing other people running our toddler groups again is how quickly Christmas disappears. It's, it seems as if it starts in sometime mid-August, and it disappears almost overnight. So a friend of mine posted on Facebook, uh, the, I think it was Boxing Day, or the day after Boxing Day, uh, that he'd found Easter eggs on sale in a shop. And, it, you know, I'm not going to begrudge that. I, lo- I like a cream egg, or at least I used to, when I could eat milk as much as the next man. If I catch you uh, eating one, I might look longingly at it for a while. Don't judge me. It's been three years since I could eat one. The... Christmas disappears almost overnight. And actually there's a problem with that, which is that we lose, as we go into the new year, we, we start the new year as if Christmas hadn't happened. 
And we lose the, in, the significance of it. So you sort of suddenly drop, uh, I mean this is a, uh, the, uh, a secular example, but you kind of go from the excess of Christmas Day and people uh, eating and drinking far too much to suddenly you're in dry January and people say, well I'm not going to drink anything ever more ever again, you know. And we have a discontinuity between what we celebrate and the way we live. And actually that's a real problem. Because the reason for celebrating is to remember that something has changed. That's the reason you celebrate something. It's to mark that something has happened and to live differently afterwards. Right? If it was irrelevant, there was no point celebrating it. And uh, so Epiphany is a good festival to celebrate. It's a good idea to pause at the beginning of the year and remember what Christmas should mean as we move forward from it. Uh, for those of you who are not from a church background, including this was uh, me until a couple of years ago, uh, not from a formal church background that is, and are not aware what Epiphany is, I'm going to explain that in a minute. Uh, when I discovered this, I was quite excited. Epiphany, which is today, is about thinking about Jesus being revealed to the world. So Christmas is about remembering God coming to his world. Epiphany is about Jesus being revealed to the world and part of that realising that his love and grace is not just for a few people but for everyone. Epiphany is about realising that Jesus' love and grace is coming to the world is not just for a few people but for everyone. Um, There's lots of readings associated with this uh, but uh, the main one is... Uh, from Matthew 2, and I'm going to read that in a moment, which is why it's helpful to have the Christmas trees up, because it still reminds us this is part of the overall story of Christmas. Actually, if you think about the idea of epiphany, if you have an epiphany, people keep saying, I've had an epiphany, uh, in, uh, in various uh, secular speech, and it just means a realisation. Like your eyes have been opened to something, and you realise something you didn't realise before. And that's what the festival is about. I'm going to read uh, Matthew 2, verse 1 to 12 in a moment. But here's my lunchtime summary. Again, if you're new to the church uh, and you come regularly, as I would encourage you to do, you'll pick up pretty quickly that each week we like to give you a lunchtime summary. That's like a one-sentence or at most two-sentence summary of everything I'm going to say. So if you remember nothing else, remember this. And then if you go home and you have kids at home or a partner at home who ask you what you learned about church, this is the one thing you can tell them. God is already preparing a way for you this year. And he invites you to encounter him in it. God is already preparing a way for you this year. And he invites you to encounter him in it. He's already preparing a way for you this year. And he invites you to encounter him in it. God's already preparing a way for you this year and invites you to encounter him in it. So we're going to read now. We're going to read from the Bible. If you uh, don't have a Bible, you're not familiar with it, uh, then we always have some at the back, but I'm also going to put the words on the screen, because I know it's not always easy to hold. So I'm reading from Matthew 2, and this is uh, a scene that's commonly associated with Christmas, but actually takes place a short while after it. After Jesus was born in Bethlehem, in Judea, during the time of King Herod, 
Magi, uh, that means uh, literally, uh, traditionally wise men or philosophers. Uh, I'm going to use the word Magi through my talk because that's how, it, uh, how it's translated. But it means a cross between an academic, if you can imagine a kind of Oxford don, and a, an astrologer and an astronomer. Right, those three things weren't... We've separated them out. In the ancient world, they would all be held together. So these are very, very clever people who studied the skies, thought they could use them to predict the future, and also knew an awful lot about stars and planets and science. Those three things were held together. Magi from the east came to Jerusalem and asked, Where's the one who's been born king of the Jews? We saw his star when it rose, and we have come to worship him. When King Herod heard this, he was disturbed and all Jerusalem with him. When he had called together all the peoples, chief priests and teachers of the law, he asked them where the Messiah was to be born. In Bethlehem, in Judea, they replied, for this is what the prophet has written. But you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least amongst the rulers of Judah. For out of you will come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod called the Magi secretly and found out from them the exact time the star had appeared. He sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go and search carefully for the child. As soon as you find him, report to me so that I too may go and worship him. After they had heard the king, they went on their way and the star they had seen when it rose went ahead of them until it stopped over the place where the child was. When they saw the star... They were overjoyed. On coming to the house, they saw the child with his mother Mary, and they bowed down and worshipped him. Then they opened their treasures and presented him with gifts of gold, of frankincense, and myrrh. And having been warned in a dream not to go back to Herod, they returned to their country by another route. This is the word of God. I uh, have told this story countless times. Most of the time I'm telling it with, uh, I mean, literally tens of children around my feet, some of whom are dressed up as kings, uh, parading around the stage, uh, often with the two children I have dressed as camels, trying to persuade other children to ride on their backs. Um, uh, Me, quietly, standing there, thinking, please just don't pull my mic out, and Heather, having kittens in the corner, thinking about all the health and safety implications of this. I've read it loads and loads of times, and I don't think I've ever really pondered it. Pondered what the story is actually about. I, I think I've been tempted to think of this as a story about wise men or wise women. We're not actually told which gender they are or how many of them there are. They, I think I've been tempted to think of it like that. You know, it's the story of how the wise men came to Jesus. Uh, or to think of it as a story about Herod. I mean, Herod is one of uh, history's real baddies. Uh, to give you some perspective, a couple of years before this was born, before this happened in about 3 or 4 uh, BC, he uh, had his two sons killed. Uh, he was basically a psychopath. Uh, as you can see, there's a bit in the middle of the story where it says, uh, Herod was troubled and all Jerusalem with him. And you would be. If Herod was upset, you would get upset. Uh, because he was a bit like uh, one of the 20th century's kind of despots. He would just have people executed. Terrible guy. I've been tempted to think of it as a story either about Herod and how bad he is, or about the wise men and about their journey across the uh, world to find Jesus. And as I've been thinking about it this week, 
I've come to realise that after Jesus, the star of the story is the star. It's really a story about a star. The story begins, you see, way before the Magi or Herod ever come on the scene. They say to Herod when they come to meet him, we saw his, that's Jesus' star, when it rose and have come to worship him. Now they're words that trip off the tongue quite easily. Think about them for a minute though. It's the kind of detail that we gloss over, but it's profoundly significant. Here is a group of people, astronomers and astrologers, who have come all the way across the countries, and they are saying, before we took a single step, God was already at work. Before Herod started consulting priests and teachers, before they raided their stores of gold and frankincense and myrrh, before they saddled their camels, God was already at work. God saw these people living, goodness knows how many countries away, probably Persia, what we would now think of as Iraq. Following a philosophy and a teaching that was completely contrary to everything he taught, I mean, astrologers in the Old Testament get a really bad rep. The idea that you can tell the future by looking at the stars is totally out of the window as far as the law of God was concerned. And yet God saw these people and loved them and prepared a way for them to meet with Jesus. God saw these people so far from him in every way And loved them and prepared a way for them to meet him before they'd taken a single step. It's a story about a star. Uh, uh, Historians and astronomers uh, have a lively debate about what it is exactly they saw. There were several things it could be. There was a comet that appears in the sky very rarely uh, that appeared about this time. There was a particular constellation where uh, Jupiter and Saturn, I don't don't really understand this stuff, but Jupiter and Saturn line up and it announces that there's a king in, in ancient texts that happened about this time. You can explore this in some detail. I would encourage you not to get bogged down in it. But it's a really interesting conversation. In a sense, though, it doesn't matter. See, there's nothing significant about a star. It's just a ball of gas burning brightly in the sky. There's nothing significant about a comet. It's It's just a piece of rock streaking through the sky. Yet God took this thing and used it to speak to these people. He knew who they were. He knew that they were looking at the stars. So he said, I can see you where you are. I can see that this is how you think. I can see this is what you need. And he took the thing they were looking at and said, look, come and find me. Come and encounter Jesus. I guess the point I'm trying to make is that God is already at work in our lives. God was at work in every single one of our lives before any single one of us took a step towards church this morning. Or before we went into school, or before we boarded the aeroplane, or before we went to work, or whatever it is that you were doing this week. God was already at work in your life beforehand. Before you saddled your camel. He knew you needed a star. Just as God saw pagan philosophers staring at the skies and used the stars he formed to speak to them of his grace, 
So he is already at work in each one of our lives. There's nothing we face this year that God has not already seen and prepared a way for us to walk in. You might feel a long way from God as the year starts, and yet God sees you just like he saw these uh, men and women. You know, they were a long way from God. They were geographically, they were in the wrong country, in the wrong place, doing the wrong thing, following the wrong teachings. And God saw them and he said, I love you anyway, and I know where you are, and I know how to get you. He's not taken by surprise by anything we face. He's not powerless in any situation we encounter. He does not fear any foe who comes against us. God is already at work preparing a way for you this year. It's a story about a star. Now that's a beautiful thought. But it raises another question. If God is preparing the way for us, where does that way lead? Yeah, that's the point about it, isn't it? If you build a road, it goes somewhere. If God is preparing a way for us, where does it lead? Well, it leads to Him. It leads to His presence. Consider what it is these Magi are doing for a minute. Because it's absolutely mad. They've got a caravan of camels plodding across several countries in an area of the world that is filled with hostile soldiers carrying gold. I mean, I wouldn't drive to Newcastle carrying gold on my own. These people are doing it on camelback across the desert. Not just gold, but they've got incense with them and spices. I mean, it's the motherload. It's as if they're in a Securicor van, but it's got a hump. Again, think about it. The roads around Jerusalem where they go to are so dangerous. Jesus actually tells stories about it. You ever thought about the parable of the Good Samaritan? The story of the Good Samaritan? Uh, if, you, if you don't have a great knowledge of the Bible, you will have come across this story. Jesus tells this story. He goes into Jerusalem. He says, uh, someone says to him, how do I know who uh, my neighbour is? How do I know who I should love? And it's a trick question. He's trying to trip Jesus up. And always a mistake. Never try and trip Jesus up. Smarter than anybody. So Jesus tells him this story, and it, the story begins by saying there was a man who went on a, uh, a journey, and you know the roads around here, they're so dangerous, he got robbed by bandits. And everyone's like, oh yeah, we know the roads around here, they got robbed by bandits. They just take that bit of the story as a given. So you've got these three, these three wise men, I mean, how wise, don't ask me. And they're like, no, don't worry, we'll do the journey on camelback, and uh, we'll just have the gold in our backpacks, it'll be fine. And so they go to Jerusalem... They uh, turn up in the palace of a known psychopath who murders anybody who might be a rival to his throne. And they say to him, I can't imagine how the conversation went, but you knock on the door, you're like, can we give the camels some water? You know, that's great. We've got a lot of gold with us. Like gold? Yes, I like gold. We've got a lot of gold with us, but we don't want to give it to you. We want to give it to somebody else. Who do you want to give it to? Uh, the psychopath asks. He says, well, it's fine. Don't worry about it. We're going to give it to the person who's going to replace you who's the true king. I mean, wise men, okay. <laughs> don't worry, don't worry, certainly don't have us executed. Um, just tell us who the real king is, and then we'll give him the gold. I mean, it is mad. The whole enterprise is bonkers. And these aren't foolish people, these are clever people. What is it that prompts a group of rich scholars to take such a dangerous and potentially ruinous journey? 
What on earth could be worth the risk of strapping a backpack full of gold to yourself and travelling on a camel down a bandit-led road to have an audience with a psychopath and ask him where the true king is? It's the chance to meet Jesus. It's the chance to meet Jesus. That's what's worth the risk. These people travelled across entire countries to come into Christ's presence. Where does the way lead? It leads to God. Why am I saying this? Well, God's call on our lives this year is the same as it was for those philosophers. At the start of the year, you might be wondering to yourself, just as I've wondered to myself, what is it that I want for this year? What is it that I need this year? What's the point of my life this year? What's my goal? They teach you that in leadership classes. Uh, how many of you have gone to leadership classes? Save your money. I'll give it to you for free. Set some goals and then follow them. Done. You can pay me by check. Work out what your goals are at the beginning of the year and then work out how to do them. It's not rocket science. Although it's quite a lot like rocket science. You work out whether you want the rocket to hit and then you set it going. Day, what are our goals this year? Our goals should be the same as these magi. We are called to pursue the presence of God. More than money, more than promotion, more than cars, more than friendship, more than family. Because it is the one thing in life that is infinitely valuable. The presence of God to these people, these, these philosophers, you know, clever people, was worth so much that they were willing to risk everything to get it. People who had achieved success in every area of life. People who had passed every exam were so clever they could read the future from the stars. They were the philosophers of their age. Cambridge and Oxford dons. People who were so rich they could afford to travel with gold just to give it away. People who were so successful that they could get an audience with the king when they turned up at his door. And it was worth nothing to them compared with meeting with Jesus. Pursue the presence of God, whatever it costs, because it is worth so much. It is the thing that gives meaning and purpose to life. The great missing puzzle piece at the centre of our hearts. It is the place of greatest fulfilment and, paradoxically, it's the place that makes us of greatest use to other people. When we find ourselves satisfied in God, when we encounter Him, we become useful to others. And that brings me to my final point. For wise people, they make a pretty fundamental mistake at the beginning. These uh, magi. They see the star. I don't want to break your dreams. I I know the Christmas carols have them following the star. It doesn't actually say that in the story. It says the star appeared and they saw the star and they assumed that the king would be born in Jerusalem. Right, if you look at verse 2, we saw his star and so we've come to worship him. They assume that the place where they will find the king, the place where they will find God's Messiah, would be in a palace. After all, that's the easy option. Leaving aside 
the bandits and the bad king. That's the easy option. These rich philosophers had to leave the palace though. You see, when they got there, they found out that Jesus wasn't where they thought he was going to be. They picked, in a sense, the easy option. They picked the obvious option. The, the, the option that was, was closest to their own experience. And they thought, he'll be there. He'll be there in a place with thousand bedrooms. With, uh, you know, I'm guessing they didn't have this. But if you can imagine now, the kind of on-tap central heating. The butlers who come and bring you food in bed. They thought, he will be in the place with people who are just like us. I mean, we're rich and we're clever. So we'll go to the palace where the rich, clever people live. And the people who are well-bred. And the people who wash nicely before dinner. And who oil their hair. And who are very lovely and we'll go there because they speak nicely and of course the king will be there and then when they got there they said is he here and everyone said we haven't got a clue what you're talking about he's not here so Herod says go and ask the priests you know go and ask the people who know what God is like where he will be when he comes and the priests come back and they say he'll be in Bethlehem He's not in a city, he's in a village. He's not in a palace. He's in a semi-detached council house. On an estate that no one would think was worth visiting. That's where they meet Jesus. In the house of a nobody, literally the nobody. Anybody know the name of the people who put Jesus up? Me neither. It's got no name. He's literally a nobody. There's a point to that, right? We're told the names of almost everyone else in the story. Or descriptions of almost everyone else in the story, particularly in Matthew and Luke. Jesus was born in nobody's house. When God became a man, he chose to humble himself. He chose to come to people who have nothing and can offer him nothing. He chose to love the loveless and unlovely. That's where you find Jesus. It's where you find God. It's a challenge at the start of a new year. You see, we can be those who say an enthusiastic yes to the, the idea that God has prepared a way for us. He's prepared a way for me to business success. I'm going to name it, I'm going to claim it. He's prepared a way for me for physical healing or for breakthrough in some area of my life. I'm not diminishing the power of that. I will pray for for anybody who's sick. And we've seen people healed in the church. I am fully affirming that. I personally know God's financial provision. When I uh, left being a barrister, my wife and I had no money, not even to repair my glasses. I tell this story because it's so vivid and it lives in my memory. Uh, we had no money at all. We were living in a house that was being let to us very generously by people who, uh, from the church, uh, below the market rate. And we had no money at all. And my son, who at that stage was two years old, came in to me and said, Daddy, I found these. And you think, you know, if your glasses were, uh, your heart sinks at this point. Because he's holding my glasses that I can't see without. <laughs> can't drive my car, can't do anything. He's holding my glasses in his hand and I noticed that there is a bit of the glasses that's missing. So I, it came off, Daddy, You're looking at it, it's sort of sheared in half. And I'm thinking at this point, I'm working full-time as a student and full-time in the church. I've got no money. I'm thinking, I've got, I can't afford to buy a new pair of glasses. I know it sounds silly, but it's going to be 100 quid and I, I don't have 100 quid. 
So Heather and I go to the door and I say, Heather, I don't know what we're going to do about this. And uh, a check comes through the door for exactly the amount of money for a new pair of glasses. Take it or leave it, that's what happened. You can think to yourself, well, that was coincidence. I prefer to think of it as a star. I'm not diminishing the fact that God provides a way for us to have the things we need. I've seen people healed. I've seen people provided for financially. What I am saying is that's not the point. And we can begin to think that God will prepare a way for us to be more comfortable or to get what we want. Perhaps you're uh, more spiritual than that, although, and you're somebody who uh, affirms that you want to you pursue the presence of God. You say, yes and amen to that, brother. Now, I'm from a sort of Pentecostal background. We're quite lively. It's a bit disappointing in this church that no one shouts out amen in the middle of my sermons. I, I Thank you. It's not the same if I have to ask you. Okay. It's just rude. It's like asking the kids to say thank you. you know, if, I have to say, if I have to ask you to say thank you, you're not really saying thank you. You just want to get down even more. My church in Forest Gate, where I used to preach occasionally, uh, there was this wonderful Jamaican lady, she must have been 80 or something, and uh, Pearl, she would just, you'd be going for it, she'd be, it's like eight men corner. <laughs> to the point where I, never, I didn't know whether I was preaching well or not. I'm in the middle of every sermon, I'm, not, I'm pretty sure this is, this is not one of my best, and she's giving it some hallelujah, brother. I think, Pearl, you're just, it's becoming valueless now. <laughs> I honestly feel like if I was stood here saying nothing, you'd be amening me. <laughs> Preach the power of silence. Yeah, you could be from that stream of the church and we affirm that we want God's presence. And I do, I want God's presence, I crave it, I long to see the God. Because it's where I found peace and joy and hope in the moments of greatest despair. But we can want it in our comfortable surroundings. We can want it whilst carry on living the way that we want to live. We can want God and this. We can want God and the palace. But none of us live in palaces, I'm assuming. I don't know everyone here. But I'm assuming you don't live in a palace. If you do, come and speak to me afterwards about gift aid. <laughs> BMS need your money. <coughs> but we build palaces for ourselves. Palaces are people like us. We only want to go to the kings. Because they're people like us. They're people who eat properly. We only want to be with the kings because they're people like us because they eat properly and they wash and they're nice and they're comfortable and they don't swear. And Palaces can be behaviours. I want to meet God but I also want to carry on doing stuff I know he doesn't like. I overplay this but you notice that the Magi didn't follow a star on the way back home. There's no... I don't want to overdo that, but you know, so they, they, in the story at least, they cut out the astrology once they meet Jesus. More than that though, they, have to be, they were willing to admit that they were wrong. You see, it must be pretty humbling, I think, to arrive at the palace of the psychopathic king and announce yourselves with all of your camels and for someone to say, look mate, I'm sorry, you've made a major mistake, he's not here. If you want to check it out, he'll be in Bethlehem, but none of us are going. And yet they had the humility to turn around and go. To say, yeah, I made a mistake, I want to meet him so much I'm willing to change. We must be willing to go to places and people that are uncomfortable or unpleasant. When we do, when we pursue the path of repentance and love for all, 
we find that God is already there. In fact, he was there all the time. Where is it you will find God? In your neighbour who needs someone to make tea for her. In the child who's lonely at school whom you befriend in the playground. In the person at work who everybody silently mistreats. Where will you find God? It might be in a relative who no one's spoken to for years. Because they were a jerk. But they need someone to love them. In the face of those who are poor and have no money. And need people to care for them practically. You're not taking Jesus to them. He's already there. But he's waiting for you to show up. And he might need some gold. Actually, seriously. I joke about asking people who live in palaces to come to me and get gift aid forms out. But people don't feed themselves. They need food. What we do with our money matters. I want to suggest several ways we can respond to this quickly. First, some of us will have come to view this year with anxiety and fear. For many of us who don't feel that way at the moment, there will be periods this year when you feel uncertain or downcast. When that happens, remember that God is already at work. He's already prepared a way through for you. Before the year began, he had prepared how you could walk through it in peace and encounter him. Don't be afraid you're in safe hands. It might feel like you're walking down a street that everybody knows people get mugged on. That you're going to the house of somebody everybody knows kills people. And that you're carrying a bundle full of gold that they all want. Don't worry, God knows and he's already prepared a way for you. Second, when making plans for the year ahead and resolutions, why not prioritise God? It's not a fashionable thing to say. But I want to suggest to you it's the one thing... The one thing that will transform your life this year is to prioritise finding God. Because he wants to be found. Find a way to begin to pray, to read the scripture, to attend a life group or come to church, to seek out opportunities to show love and grace to those who need it. As I say, he's already there. He's already in Bethlehem. He's waiting for us to show up. Finally, we need to match our, be willing to match our good intentions with good actions. Let me finish with a challenge. Where might God be calling you this year that is uncomfortable, but he is present? He might be calling you to stretch yourself financially to care for those who cannot care for themselves. He might be calling you to make a phone call to someone who needs it. He might be calling you to reach out to the child who's bullied in your school. Wherever it is that God is calling you to go that is uncomfortable, Go. Go. Where is the Bethlehem that you might find Jesus? Even if it moves you beyond what you're used to or what you expect. God is already preparing a way for you this year. And invites you to encounter him in it. We're going to take a minute to be silent now. As we do, we're going to be... I'm going to be inviting the Holy Spirit to come. You might sense that God is speaking to you about something. If he is, then just take a moment and respond to him.